Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I'm here speaking to Karol Karpinski, who is a financial sector specialist at the World Bank. He's worked in Bangladesh and other countries before, helping them set up their payment systems. Hi, Karol. Nice, nice to have you on this podcast. Hello. I'm very pleased to be here. And I just wanted to say that although I do work at World Bank, all opinions here are personal and should not be attributed to the bank itself. Okay, thank you. So, Carl, how did you get to this job? What was your path to, to, to working in international development? Most of my colleagues, I was just lucky. It's luck, more luck than skill. I graduated from a master's university or with the uh, MPP, Master's in Public Policy, interns at uh, the ILO, and I chanced ILO International Labour Organization in Geneva, and I chanced at the opportunity uh, to move to the World Bank in DC, first to work on a joint project between the ILO and the World Bank, and then for a job proper. So to be perfectly honest, uh, yeah, I didn't know anybody, neither at the ILO nor at the World Bank. I didn't have any insider info. I didn't graduate from a fancy school. I just submitted my applications, and I guess I was uh, fairly successful. So blind luck. Although I persisted, uh, they, they had rejected me many times beforehand. <laughs> Uh, what's your job right now and uh, how does it and, and how do you work with developing countries? So uh, I like to call myself a financial plumber because uh, what I focus on is mainly the so-called plumbing of financial systems. So mainly payment systems, payment clearing and settlement systems, but also some of the more esoteric uh, parts such as central securities depositories where actually it is you know, written down who owns a certain piece of debt or equity uh, or the so-called central counterparties, which kind of reduce bilateral exposure and uh, uh, change that to multilateral exposure. So all of that uh, is sort of within my job brief. Truth be told, most of it's pretty basic because the countries where I'm working are basic. So it's setting up basic uh, financial infrastructure such as uh, interbank settlement systems or basic card schemes or just making sure that uh, governments uh, and government agencies can uh, pay people or accept payments electronically. Although still within that, it's a pretty diverse kind of challenges and jobs. Sometimes we... Uh, at the World Bank held them on IT. Sometimes we do mostly work on the regulatory process and sometimes it's just a mixture of uh, all of it. Okay. Uh, living, if you live in a developed country, you, you don't realize the plethora of financial infrastructure behind a simple transaction like paying with a credit card. What are the important pieces of infrastructure de uh, developing countries miss compared to developed countries, which, which, which means that they're financial systems aren't as efficient and safe as those in developed countries? So, you know, uh, first of all, I must just say that uh, it's not always one-to-one -one correspondence. There are uh, countries uh, which are, as we say, low income or middle income that actually have a very robust uh, financial infrastructure. And there are some developed countries, such as those in North America, uh, which are actually lagging behind uh, with some of uh, their financial infrastructures. So not always a one-on-one, -on -one, but the very key thing that you, of course, need to have uh, is some form of uh, settlement system that would allow different banks to transfer 
uh, their the liabilities or their balance on the books of the central bank uh, between themselves. Uh, usually uh, these days uh, it is uh, done through what uh, we tend to call the real-time gross settlement system, the RTGS. Uh, but there could be some variations on that. Uh, for instance, the system used in Canada is slightly different. It's not entirely uh, real-time gross settlement. Real-time real gross settlement means that liabilities or, or transactions between different participants are not netted, uh, but are actually settled like one by one. So if one in, in a netting system, if you transact from bank A to bank B, $100 uh, and then uh, $100 from bank B to bank A, uh, effectively the net is zero. Don't do anything in a sort of gross system. You actually do book those two transactions. So this is the basics. Um, uh, most countries have it, some still do not. Uh, in South Sudan, for instance, where I work, this is still being constructed. And that's a sort of base upon which you construct uh, layers of what we tend to call uh, retail payment systems, such as uh, card schemes, uh, credit transfer schemes, electronic uh, fund transfers, and so on and so forth. Uh, these days, uh, mostly some exciting things with wearables, uh, mobile payments, and such. Okay, that was very interesting on the real-time gross settlement because I've noticed that in the U.S. you can't make settlements outside office hours, outside banking office hours, but in India you can you can do it at any time of the day, both inside and outside the banking system. Why does this happen? Oh, great question. Oh, to be perfectly honest, I think because people like to sleep, so they don't <laughs> want the economy to crash when they're in their beds. India was actually indeed the first country in the world that introduced fully 24-7 uh, RTGS. Uh, so uh, kudos uh, to them. And, you know, funny thing is that nothing uh, exciting so far has happened. People just transact uh, throughout a different uh, uh, times of a day, but th th nothing terrible, nothing exciting has happened. It just is. Uh, now, in defense of Americans, the operating hours of Fedwire and the National Settlement Service, those two key infrastructures, are actually pretty wide. Uh, I don't remember them by heart, but it's like four-hour break or so. Uh, whereas often in Europe or in Asia, it's like literally nine to five. So they're, they're doing okay. And I think if they are really squinted, especially considering that uh, the United States spans so many time zones, they could do 24-7. I guess it's part political decision. It's part uh, uh, this sort of kind of ain't broke, don't fix it mentality that is pretty common in the sector. Should should central banks be in charge of retail payment systems? It, it seems to me that the bundling of regulations that we have, monetary policy, banking supervision, um, and then other things related to banks, should central banks be doing retail payment super, supervision uh, uh, along with that, or are there better regulatory structures? That is pretty interesting. I think that uh, they're generally pretty well positioned to do that because they do tend to have uh, the right mix of expertise, but it's uh, absolutely a contentious topic. So in some places, there is uh, oh, there's a distinction being made. And to be honest, we do have a lot of internal discussions and that within our team, you know, sort of or what we tend to say is oversight of a system as such, the payment system, 
um, and the sort of prudential supervision of individual operators and uh, individual service providers. And sometimes it's split. So for instance, uh, a fintech in the UK might have a sort of supervisory responsibilities to the FCA, but the Bank of England will be there with their so-called oversight powers. Uh, and there's also sometimes difference between sort of market slash competition regulation and uh, more prudential slash uh, financial stability angle or consumer protection. So for instance, there is something called the PSR, payment system regulator in the UK, and that is sort of competition authority for payments. So they're supposed to say, you know, like the uh, interchange arrangements that you're uh, pursuing are a cartel and you cannot do it because we support free competition. Whereas uh, the Bank of England would be more like, okay, you know, your operational risk is too high. This is dangerous uh, for our financial system as such. Do something about it. Now, again, the problem is that if you start multiplying institutions, uh, then there, uh, there is an issue of data sharing. It starts writing down memoranda of understanding, sharing those, but still somebody's going to be too lazy or just can't be bothered, or there's been going to be some internal politicking so the data will not be shared, something bad will happen, and uh, the structure will be blamed. So I guess, you know, one advantage of... Uh, uh, keeping things under the lid in the central bank is that at least all the data sharing and uh, all the coordination probably is uh, easier to be housed in a single institution. Then on the other hand, uh, oh, well, you know, different countries uh, work differently and sometimes something uh, that works for one does not work uh, for another. The one thing that I think we should we really ought to recognize in this world of international organizations is that things, you know, kind of Chesterton fence for regulation. Sometimes things do happen for a reason and they don't really have to be all the same everywhere from Brazil all the way to Vietnam. Uh, one thing, though, I must say is I don't think that uh, central banks should be that very much in the service provision business. And I think that here India's attitude is very progressive insofar as uh, NPCI uh, is a separate entity that uh, functions slightly more on a, on a market basis and highest from the market uh, and is not per se a civil service structure. Okay. Uh, NPCI recently put a 30% cap for each um, payment company. So Paytm could, could only um, get 30% of the market share, what's uh, Google Pay and so on. Is this a good idea from a, co a competition perspective or does it make efficiency worse? To be honest, um, I should not uh, uh, make any pronouncements without studying that in more detail. But overall, I'm not a great believer in caps. Uh, I think that if a monopoly is a concern, uh, then there are other tools uh, to, to try to uh, address it from simply uh, regulatory uh, uh, issues uh, to 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 actual antitrust uh, um, antitrust proceedings. Uh, I think that, and I think this is one thing that uh, sort of uh, or part of South Asia 
uh, is uh, doing a little bit too heavy is kind of micromanaging the markets. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that they do all right, but I don't think that I would necessarily uh, adopt that approach in my country. But then again, of course, people who do make those decisions uh, have a visibility of some things that I do not. I do not professionally work in India. So I wouldn't like to say they're right or wrong without studying it further. You grew up in Poland after the revolutions, the color revolutions. What was it like and how has that shaped your perspective on life? Oh, very good question. Uh, first of all, uh, I, um, you know, I'm a big believer in economic development because just experienced it. Like my whole life was... Uh, that all the milestones uh, were connected to some sort of economic growth. And, and I just, uh, it's just nicer to live in a rich country than to live in a poor country. So I'd never, I think one thing that, that it affected me is that I am always rather far away from romanticizing poverty or, or saying that, you know, there are different ways of growing, different ways of knowing, etc. And therefore, people should remain poor because it's aesthetically pleasing for uh, whoever writes tweets. Uh, so, I mean, one thing about uh, Poland was like just comparing uh, the way my youngest brother, who was born in uh, 2002, so like he spent his entire life uh, in the European Union in a uh, officially classified high-income country compared to me uh, who actually uh, experienced uh, just you know the, the sort of idea that I my entry entry level wage in a supermarket where I worked as a teenager was one dollar uh, I just uh, looked at uh, it's a five five point90 lotty so around one dollar one dollar thirty uh, per hour uh, so you know, uh, you kind of believe in economic development, uh, that what you do. And, you know, what was it like? Uh, it was uh, it was quite exciting. Things kept happening. Uh, you see, like, the country was a big construction site, especially since uh, we joined the European Union. The new roads popping up, new shops. Uh, at the same time, of course, also a time of uh, struggle, inequality, Oh, that part of the country where I'm from was really badly affected by unemployment in the 1990s. We just had a chat the other day uh, with a classmate of mine uh, who also came from the same region, now works uh, for a bank uh, in Warsaw. And we're talking about how sort of uh, our lives were somewhat shaped by the 30 or 40 percent uh, unemployment that. Uh, we grew up with in our counties. And I guess uh, perhaps it could have uh, affected us in subtle ways, such as playing safe with career choice, etc. But overall, I think super exciting times. Uh, uh, this is one thing that I would say connects Poland to Bangladesh with the five plus percent uh, economic growth every year. Things just change as you look at them. It's mm, a fair point. I've seen it in, I've seen it in, uh, in India too. You mentioned Bangladesh. Bangladesh now has a real GDP per capita higher than India, or maybe not, but it's getting pretty close. It wasn't like that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and you and people and observers at that time may not have predicted this. Why did this happen? Well, uh, the thing is, of course, hindsight is always 2020. <laughs> so I don't want to make myself, although I'm an optimist with respect to Bangladesh, I don't want to. 
uh, pretend that I know more than uh, other people do. But I would say um, a few things. Uh, making women active uh, in the labor market are uh, very important. So the labor participation right is high. Successful family planning, uh, generally speaking, also the fact that it is a fairly homogeneous country with a very bad and, uh, shall we say, heated political struggle, but at least it will spur uh, the ethnic and uh, uh, linguistic struggles that we know from elsewhere. I think that Bengali diaspora uh, across the world uh, played an important role in both remittances, but also bringing uh, or bringing folks with expertise, connections, starting new businesses. Um, it's quite a quite a big thing. Uh, there, there is uh, a lot of uh, big enterprises in Bangladesh, like uh, let's say Bangla American or U.S. Bangla Airlines, uh, give you an idea where the investments and, and or, or like Dutch Bangla Bank Limited. Uh, give you an idea where, where the investment and capital were flowing from. Um, so a combination of all sorts of those factors. Uh, uh, I think that overall, um, it sort of uh, vindicates the approach that uh, you ought to invest in human development, so schooling, healthcare, uh, and, and sort of basic gender equality, because I think that it actually did work uh, in the case of Bangladesh. Uh, it is pretty nice. You go to a very poor village and you see uh, crowds of, of little girls in school uniforms uh, about to start school. It's actually positively inspiring. And I, I'm not denying all the bad things that are happening, uh, but still it uh, did strike me as particularly, you know, small places in Bangladesh did strike me as places where hope was present. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the investments into schooling and healthcare. The free market types would disagree with you. I mean, it's, 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 it's a little old fashioned to make schools of thought distinctions, but there definitely is a trend of, a trend of thought in development economics, um, which says that you, you should let the market take care of this. Is this true or would you, be, would you say the government has an active role in developing countries here? It's a very interesting thing because actually, in a sense, um, uh, what Bangladesh is doing, particularly in secondary schooling, uh, is a bit of a kind of new labor slash charter school variety because a lot of schools are actually um, privately operated and just governmentally subsidized. Uh, so there are uh, NGOs, there are simply private companies, uh, particularly in faraway areas. And of course, you know, there is uh, the system of religious schooling, which is completely separate. So, so I'm not mixing that uh, here. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. So it's kind of a semi-market uh, run system. But at least looking at uh, my own experience, uh, uh, I think I'm quite a believer in public uh, or provision of a service or at least provision of funding. But, you know, I've been to state school uh, my whole life, uh, including university, which was also courtesy of Dutch taxpayers. Um, I think that, uh, uh, and, and so did uh, my parents. And so... Uh, it did us well, and I was pretty sure, you know, my, my grandma was intelligent, but she grew up uh, before uh, going to um, full-fledged state schooling was possible, and she ended up being um, a seamstress. So um, I think that, you know, correlation, of course, is not causation, but I would say it's still got a role. Perhaps it, should, it, it shouldn't be overrated. So I guess there is a point of diminishing returns, which perhaps some of the countries have reached, but I wouldn't say that Bangladesh has. Speaking of free markets, um, do, do, do you think shock therapy in Poland was a mistake? 
Um, so I think that, uh, first of all, um, there was no much choice to be made. And I, I really like Branko Milanovic, uh, who wrote a paper uh, in, I think, 1992, which he uh, recently referenced uh, in his blog. Perhaps we can put it in the show notes. Uh, but uh, the idea was that the country was broke. Uh, the government lost, you know, there, there, there was at a certain point, it was clear that uh, Soviet tanks will not defend the governments. Uh, uh, and that government lost its capacity to steer the economy. So you had a, a choice between making things real, making prices again uh, display what they're, or, or the information that they're meaning to convey, uh, make the currency exchangeable and sort of restore trade, etc. Or you could abdicate and have the same role performed for you by the informal market, by basically you know, the shadow economy. So to me, it was basically uh, not as much as a shock therapy as a sort of reassertion of the reality uh, of, uh, um, of what's been happening by the government. And I think like, I really respect highly Branko for that because he's generally uh, on a fairly uh, left side of the debate and he's been fairly skeptical of shock therapy in Latin America or, um, or Africa. And yet uh, he recognizes that at that point, uh, the government in Poland uh, didn't really have any choice. As I said, the country was broke. Uh, they dues uh, to uh, the Paris club, the IMF, etc., were coming. Uh, the people simply would not, you know, they, they, even if government maintained some sort of transitional arrangements uh, and allocated resources by fiat, uh, people would not obey. So at the end of the day, uh, the capitalism uh, uh, of this slightly crazy variety that we experienced is in the 1990s is something that we chose for ourselves. There wasn't much uh, of a policy space to do other things, uh, I'm afraid. Of course, later on, the choices that the government made uh, with respect to taxation, redistribution, etc., uh, can be and are contested, and I agree with some of those criticisms, but the uh, actual thing that happened in 1990, 1991, I don't think that there was realistically any choice to, to speak. Also, you know, or you look at uh, other peer competitors, which, let's not forget, were in much worse shape, uh, sorry, which were in much better shape in Poland, so like Hungary and uh, Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia at that time, they were in a slightly better shape. They ended up sort of repeating the same playbook. And those who didn't sort of ended up um, like Ukraine or Belarus, even with worse inequality and, and worse performing economy. Okay. Should the EU admit more countries in its periphery? Because it's, it's, its last expansion has been a, quite a while ago, around 15 years ago, if my memory serves right. Yeah, the last yeah, the last one was uh, I guess uh, slightly uh, more recently because Croatia was admitted I think 2013. Uh, so slightly more recently, but that sort of order of magnitude. Um, uh, it would be nice if it could. I think that it's kind of breaking at the seams, and I'm not the best person to make the arguments uh, because. Uh, me and my kinsfolk uh, are now being blamed for, for Brexit because we all decided to come over and make Polish the second most spoken language <laughs> in England and Wales. So, you know, I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's, um, 
it's tricky. I believe that uh, that you could do w with some housekeeping first. Uh, with that in mind, though, I would love other countries, other countries to join, especially since it would only be fair, right? Those are people that literally uh, just march, uh, asking governments to to let them in, and they're genuinely pro-European, so keeping the doors closed doesn't uh, sound very fair. But it's uh, it's going to be a fairly tricky tricky business. Uh, it is interesting uh, if you look at uh, uh, the EU enlargement in the past, before this big wave in uh, 2004 that admitted Poland as well. Those enlargements were usually sort of bite-sized, you know, like Denmark, Ireland, uh, the UK, or like Scandinavian countries, or like Spain and Portugal, or Greece as a one-off. I think that. Uh, uh, getting everybody, all those post-communist countries plus uh, Malta and Cyprus admitted uh, was, was quite challenging and perhaps it left uh, trauma in the bureaucrats' heads uh, about what can happen if, you know, the uh, enlargement happens again. Mm -hmm. um, countries that were more recently admitted, uh, uh, admitted to the EU, like Poland and Hungary, a lot more trustful in European institutions than countries that were at the that were at the beginning, like the UK, which was formerly in the EU, and uh, you might say Italy and Greece. Why does this happen? Um, first of all, because uh, people in Poland or Hungary still have a living memory of what it was like before and right now. So honestly speaking, uh, you know, of course, people who are younger than me do not remember the pre-EU reality, but they're what, you know, a fifth, a tenth of uh, the population. People still do remember when the country was really, really poor. And they do remember that things started changing for the better when the EU enlargement came. That's one thing. Another thing, though, is, of course, um, public sector in these countries uh, is traditionally somewhat underinvested. Uh, the salaries of civil servants uh, aren't that great. Uh, the standards uh, have not been developed. Uh, and overall, you know, it's not bad. Uh, it, those are still fairly capable governments. Uh, but you see that the functioning of the government uh, is at sort of much lower level than um, uh, of the private sector. So we will look at it and what they sort of conclude is that uh, EU is the sort of government that works and we're going to, to trust it more. And the people also do have the sense that uh, the EU is the agent of change that pushes uh, the national authorities to often uh, introduce some things that benefit consumers uh, or, or citizens from the end of roaming fees in Europe uh, to things like uh, food safety standards or farming standards, etc. Um, there's also a whole bunch of people that get like sort of direct EU cash, uh, common agricultural policy, which means basically farm subsidies. Uh, uh, there is uh, uh, there's a yet another debate to have on the merits of it. But the bottom line for places like Poland, which are slightly more rural than the rest of the European Union, is that there's a lot of farmers uh, getting a very generous check from the European Union every month. Yeah, a, a teacher of mine once described the EU CAP as the worst thing for global development since colonialism. I think she was joking, but I think the point stands. Uh, what do people what do people get the most wrong about the World Bank? 
Um, I think that people generally think that uh, we're uh, pro-capitalist. I think that people uh, have the sense uh, that uh, the World Bank is like the super recognized, uh, privatized everything uh, organization. The truth is, of course, that uh, since our clients are almost exclusively governments, if there's no government, there's no World Bank either. So actually, we're bureaucrats that appreciate bureaucracies because there are our clients and there are our reason for existence. So I think that the, the idea that uh, the World Bank uh, is uh, uh, stuffed by some sort of crazy libertarians that would like to see no state uh, is something that uh, is wrong, but it's quite widely held, whereas the reality is uh, that it is sort of, you know, kind of new laborish, I guess, if I were to describe the media. And although there's some amazing intellectual diversity, uh, I, I really, you know, um, you can look uh, at the biographies of uh, people, of, of the World Bank leaders, there's, there's quite a fair share of diversity, uh, but even, you know, from my own dealings, I have people voting for the Communist Party. I have uh, uh, folks that uh, went on to work together uh, with uh, Piketty. Uh, even looking at our former economists like you know, uh, Branko Milanovic, like uh, uh, Martin Revalian, or like from previous generation like Albert Hirschman, etc. You see that actually they're all over the place on their map of economic thoughts. Point. What criticism of the of the World Bank hits most to the heart? What what do the critics get right? I think that the critics are right uh, in sort of the basic sense that it's too bureaucratized, uh, and so uh, the, the the red tape uh, is quite discouraging. When countries way back when uh, had no place uh, to go other than the World Bank as and regional development bank as far as uh, funding is concerned. They would just, uh, you know, bear with it. Uh, I don't have it handy, but I remember a really hilarious memo written uh, for uh, the president of the World Bank in the 1970s. Uh, uh, that was the time of Robert McNamara, and he was about to meet Lee Kuan Yew in Washington, D.C. And there was World Bank staff memo that, again, we can share in the show notes uh, that was written by... Uh, uh, staffers at uh, McNamara's office warning him that Lee Kuan Yew surely will raise uh, the issue of cumbersome bank procedures uh, that are uh, interfering with uh, Singapore's native innate business instincts. So, you know, plus a change, the more, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This is still people, something that people really complain about. And I guess it's... Uh, uh, very native to a bureaucracy. You want to cover your, shall we say, basis. You would just want to, you want to protect yourself against anything going wrong. So you're not taking risks. So you just create a lot of uh, uh, red tape and, and paper trails to CYA. Is that is that inevitable? Can bureaucracies ever escape it? Because when you see their self, their self sustaining mechanisms, you know, unless you have uh, a revolution from the top, you can't change it. Well, I think that uh, overall you could change, but it would mean uh, changing the sort of risk tolerance, uh, changing gears on the risk tolerance uh, uh, in the institution and literally um, 
just accepting uh, that we're going to fail and we're going to fail big time and just treat it like an aviation or medicine as a learning opportunity and not a proof that uh, everybody's evil. Uh, the, the funny thing, right, you know, the Operation Speed Award and development of vaccines, etc. Uh, the whole assumption was we throw money at the problem so that uh, with uh, a lot of those different vaccines, a lot of different technologies, something's going to come up that's uh, kind of right. That was the, the premise, but people now still kind of complain that actually less effective vaccines or like not so good vaccines were given money. I mean, that's the idea of risk taking. You just to try something and something like works, something fails. But I bet you if uh, the banks spent more money on that, uh, you'd have people complaining why did you waste taxpayers' money on something that ultimately did not work. So th that's the existential problem, I think. Uh, that there is bureaucracy does not select for risk-taking, and there's also a lot of discouragement. The incentives are staked against risk-taking. So either you really have to shape the organizations and realign those incentives, protect your staff, and don't, don't you know, throw them under the bus. But if something bad happens, you know, just acknowledge it's, it's the cost of taking risk. Uh, hard to achieve in a bureaucracy, although some are better than others. What uh, institutional structures make some bureaucracies better than others at taking risk? Um, I think that uh, overall, um, it's a couple of things. Uh, um, one thing is I think this sort of diversity in hiring, uh, where you got people from different backgrounds, uh, science, technology, uh, banking, etc. Not everybody with the same Harvard Kennedy School MPP degree. Uh, that kind of already you get different inputs, different standards, different perspectives. Um, overall, I would say also uh, generally speaking, or uh, realigning uh, the or, or the kind of evaluation and the risk and the reward process starts kind of uh, rewarding risk quite explicitly in a sense that, okay, if you don't have a failed project, it means that you're not taking, you're not courageous enough. There could be some variation on that, but, but overall, uh, just uh, oh, kind of try to bake it in, in the way people are hired and promoted, I guess. But it's, it's a tough nut to crack. I don't think I've given justice to your excellent question. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ponder, I'll ponder it. Yeah. Let's say a, the, a consortium of global leaders called you and said, here you go is a, a big sum of money, a design and inst an and institution that, that gives maximum impact per dollar spent to ensure broad economic growth. What's the, what's the best way to do that? Uh, probably uh, just uh, bribe uh, politicians in high-income <laughs> countries uh, to open their borders and mm -hmm. allow unfettered immigration. So, I think that in terms of bank for the back, it can't be <laughs> anything more than that. You're, you're coming out as an open borders advocate? Uh, pretty much so. It would be hypocritical for me not to, right? Uh, born in Poland, studied uh, in Netherlands, courtesy of Dutch taxpayers, and now our American overloads of overlords are generously <laughs> hosting me in Arlington County. Uh, but also, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's so, uh, in our nature, there's always going to be people that are a little bit of itchy feet and want to move around. And I think that uh, trying to counter it is um, against human nature. Now, of course, I do recognize uh, the political uh, you know, lack of feasibility. And there are some sort of legitimate concerns about doing absolutely nothing. 
but I think that the system as it is is completely broken because um, it's forces people to lie, right? People want to move for, for economic opportunity, but they have to make up their asylum claims because this is a realistically uh, the only way sort of semi-skilled or unskilled workers can move across borders. So instead of lies, you subsidize a, a rather cruel human trafficking industry. Uh, you still don't uh, have the sort of the effect in terms of uh, your social mix because people still are going to find a way to uh, get through and, and camp in Calais or whatever. Uh, so no, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's broken. At, at least, you know, I tried to shake it to radically uh, increase the number of people uh, who are admitted to, uh, to countries uh, that are willing to admit them through legal means. And as a sort of carrot, you could also be then slightly more stringent with the criteria such as, you know, you need to speak the local language uh, because this is an attainable goal. You can, you know, I learned languages, you did too. Uh, lots of you know, our parents did uh, as well. Like my, actually, I don't know, is it a good point to come out the, with the uh, piece of news that my father actually worked as a, as they nicely say, irregular, namely illegal, a construction worker uh, in London in the early 1990s. Uh, uh, so, you know, would be hypocritical for me to uh, uh, oppose it. But also, I, I just think that if you create a pathway for migrants that's both feasible, attainable and kind of meets your policy targets, that's just much better than a blanket ban, especially blanket ban coupled with international um, uh, obligation to accept uh, asylum seekers and refugees, which then means that everybody is a refugee these days, which just creates a completely perverse set of incentives. Uh, another, another. Uh, the, I mean, the, the immigration point, I mostly agree with, partially for personal incentive reasons and partially because I actually believe in what's said there. But another way pe uh, people often make the case is that international aid should be increased. The UK has been cutting its um, aid budget and quite surprisingly, the Prime Minister is facing a, a, a revolt in the House of Commons saying that they shouldn't. Is international aid on net good or bad? I think it's good, uh, but I should, uh, I'm going to treat it uh, more like, uh, you know, a safety net. Think about the safety net, just a global safety net. Uh, is in, unemployment insurance a good thing? Yes, I think it's a good thing. Should we even, you know, spend some more money on unemployment insurance or disability insurance? Yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, a lot of people are unemployed and in poverty and we should give them cash. But is unemployment insurance going to change the world and introduce economic development to places that lack it? No, not really. That is, you know, a great deal of different incentive, different pathways. And some of those are yet to be discovered. And some of those are very, uh, you know, country specific. It's not that uh, um, Ghana can always repeat uh, Korea and, and, and Panama can always repeat Singapore, etc. There are some modalities. But overall, I would say, you know, it's, it's good, it's valuable. And I think I, I could not, in my good conscience, work in that system thinking that it's completely evil or useless. I just, uh, you know, uh, ask my little brother to uh, give me a job uh, with his ice cream stand that he just launched by the Baltic Sea. But uh, I, I think that um, um, its uh, impact is uh, as more of a safety net than as a sort of transformational tool. Okay. 
Having said that, you know, international aid paid for some cool things. Uh, I, I don't know your your any uh, NUS student today. So, for instance, <laughs> uh, you might be surprised that uh, a World Bank two actually World Bank loans paid for the Kent Ridge campus. Uh, we also uh, there, there's it would be around hundred or hundred and fifty million dollars in today's uh, today's money taking inflation into account. We did things like the World Bank had projects. Uh, financing, for instance, uh, the Japanese bullet trains where the first came around. So, so there are cool things that are happening on the margin. And I think, you know, I know people in my own institutions uh, that do very valuable work. So I didn't want to say when I say it's not transformational, I mean more in the aggregate. I think that individual interventions still can be a super high yield. Okay, that's a fair point. A few questions for you on career advice. What's some extremely underrated career advice you, you've heard? Um, get good with bureaucracy. The thing is, everything is bureaucracy these days. And uh, very powerful people in the office usually have no way or will to find out how to look up, uh, I don't know, some budget information on the intranet or the schedule or for shuttles between different buildings, etc. Uh, for intelligent people, it takes uh, no more than half an hour to figure out where everything is, and that could be your secret superpower. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, where should ambitious people go these days? Oh, God, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not ambitious enough to be able <laughs> to ask uh, the, to answer those questions. Uh, I hope that you all come to the World Bank, go to www.worldbank.org slash jobs. Um, uh, and, you know, literally, um, we read all the applications. I read, I go through an intense database. Uh, uh, I've got access to it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, no, uh, but uh, more seriously, if you don't want to be a, be a bureaucrat, sorry, now I'm trying to self-replicate here. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think if you're not uh, going to be a bureaucrat, uh, overall uh, biological sciences are sort of underrated and uh, uh, an exciting field to be at, particularly since I think that the sort of technology transformation uh, has not uh, yet occurred fully in kind of biomedic spaces. Uh, 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 I've got a few close friends who are into that uh, whole thing of using AI for protein folding and uh, uh, trying to sort of uh, figure out uh, drugs properties before they actually go to the lab. I think it's fairly exciting. So I'd, uh, um, one thing that I can definitely recommend as a career field, because it's uh, still sort of very traditional in some of, of the, it, it kind of, it's often that uh, folks with mathematics uh, or a computer science degrees enter the, the biotech uh, with their uh, shiny toolboxes and are disturbing and, and disrupting uh, the existing uh, ways of doing things. Very exciting. Okay, fair thing. Um, my last question to you is, what do you think of the idea that uh, crypto payment, crypto payments with cryptocurrency will be useful in the remittances in the developing world? Uh, only as a matter of regulatory arbitrage, right? Uh, the, the issue is often uh, the there are some governments that are trying to uh, enforce uh, certain exchange rates upon migrants or official financial institutions, uh, which then uh, creates uh, 
the parallel markets, uh, and of course, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., are going to be very useful uh, in creating that conduit for the parallel market. And we saw that, right? You know, a lot of often uh, the sort of quote-unquote use cases were not about poor countries per se, but but about poor countries with a sort of government collapse uh, and and. Uh, a burgeoning uh, black market like Venezuela, for example. I think that this sort of uh, this use case uh, is going to grow. I don't think uh, that it's going to be very relevant for you know a Bangladeshi laborer uh, sending uh, money home from Qatar, for instance, uh, because I they've already got all the right tools. You generally connect uh, different payment systems using some. Uh, links and uh, uh, you can have remittances pretty cheap and nice uh, that uh, reach their destination within seconds. So it's it's sort of often it's a solution instead of a problem. But as I said, you know, I reserve. I think it still will be the case that for countries uh, where there are simply some regulatory barriers uh, preventing things uh, from being done in a normal way, then crypto can be like a sort of gets out of jail free card. Well, I mean, sometimes it might not, but uh, it is it is definitely the case. And of course, you know, the, the all sorts of shadow and uh, 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 remittances, um, uh, for instance, um, another use case that might be very much uh, the case uh, is uh, irregular migrants when AML-CFT uh, uh, rules, for instance, get even more intrusive and will force people to, say, present their job contracts and uh, prove that they really are earning this money that they're saying, sending home from legal employment. Crypto can also be an option for them. And I expect that uh, somebody will uh, take advantage of that business niche. Okay, that was a that was a that was quite a thoughtful answer, a lot more than than, than I would have imagined. Um, thank you for for being. You've been an amazing guest, and I've never gone this detail into payments, bureaucracy, Bangladesh, or Poland ever before. Thank you very much. It's been great pleasure, a uh, great podcast, uh, and uh, looking forward uh, to any comments uh, from the listeners. Oh yeah, thank you.